Thanks for choosing this podcast for the BJSM community, which I think you're going to really enjoy. It's a conversation between Dr. Mark Hyman and Nina Teichholz. And Nina Teichholz is renowned for making the case that fats have been unfairly demonized. She captured that in a book called The Big Fat Surprise. And the podcast begins with Dr. Hyman asking her about the book and the rationale for writing it. In your book, it was fascinating because you really unearthed the origin story of why we came to believe that fat was bad. And you kind of turned it upside down and revealed all the flaws in the science and the thinking behind why fat wasn't the culprit in particularly heart disease and particularly saturated fat. So can you talk about the origin story and what you discovered and the surprising things you found as you were researching your book that were like, oh my God, what happened? How did we get in this mess? (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, like any idea, the idea that fat and cholesterol are bad for you. They, they have their origin in a moment in time. We've been living with it for so long, we just kind of think it's always been true, but it hasn't. So it really started in the 1950s um, when the nation was in a panic over the rising tide of heart disease, had been pretty much non-existent um, in the early 1900s and had risen to become the number one leading killer. Right. Even President Eisenhower, 1955, has a heart attack in the out of the Oval Office for 10 days. Everybody's attention is fixed on this public health emergency. What causes heart disease? And there were a number of explanations. Maybe it was, you know, auto exhaust. Maybe it was vitamin deficiency. Maybe it was the type A personality. Um, remember that? Um, mm-hmm. But there was one theory. Which both of us probably have. <laughs> <laughs> and we're still alive. Um, and um There was one theory proposed by a physiologist by the name of Ansel Benjamin Keyes from the University of Minnesota, and it was his idea that it was saturated fats, the kind you find in animal foods, but also coconut oil, um, saturated fats and dietary cholesterol, think egg yolks, shellfish, that cause heart disease. And so that was called the diet heart hypothesis, right? So there were some animal studies on rabbits who never eat that stuff and gave them high levels of cholesterol to eat and they got heart disease. So, oh, it's cholesterol in the arteries, so it must be the cholesterol we're eating and the fat we're eating. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about the, the the weak science behind, you know, when he came up with his idea, it was just an idea. And there, you know, there was a tiny bit of evidence behind it, including these animal studies where they looked at, they gave rabbits a super high cholesterol diet and the rabbits got cholesterol in their blood. Well, rabbits are herbivores, you know, yeah. they're not omnivores like we are. So, um, and, and so there was like, there was just like a little bit of piecemeal um, evidence out there, but... It was this moment, there was this this um, this vacuum of information, and into that stepped Ansel Keys with his diet heart hypothesis. Saturated fat, dietary cholesterol. He was this incredibly charismatic, powerful man who was, according to his peers, able to argue anyone to the death. Um, he was called aggressive even by his friends. Um, and... He was really able to get his idea implanted into the American Heart Association such that in 1961, the American Heart Association comes out with a recommendation saying, don't eat saturated fat and dietary, dietary cholesterol, cut back on meat, full full fat dairy, cheese. And meat was vilified because it contains saturated fat. Because these they contain saturated fat and they contain cholesterol, right? right. Stop Which, by the way, the, the, the saturated fat in meat is a specific kind that doesn't raise cholesterol called steric acid. 
Right. Ironically. And meat, the kind of fat in an average like porterhouse steak, only a third of that is saturated. All foods contain a mixture of different kinds of fatty acids. Yeah. Olive oil Even is 20% all, saturated right. fat, right? Mackerel has more saturated fat per 100 grams of fat than meat does. But it was just like, it was just this really uh, simplistic kind of science that they were using. And it was taking a stab at trying to prevent heart disease, but it became policy. Mm -hmm. So that, and it, that 1961 American Heart Association policy was the first time anywhere in the world that people were told, cut back on meat, cheese, eggs in order to prevent a heart attack. And that was the beginning of it all. So it's really important to say that at that time, it wasn't the total, a low fat diet. They yeah. didn't say reduced fat overall. It was just saturated fat. No, in fact, there was a lot of evidence that around that time that carbohydrates were driving obesity and carbohydrate restriction was a standard recommendation for weight loss. Yeah. And also for controlling diabetes, it was, mm -hmm. you know, in the early 1900s. And actually there was an, a, a large amount of science on in the early 1900s, mainly in Austria and Germany. And the story is that that science disappeared with World War II. Those yeah. scientists kind of like were dispersed. But they had done the science on showing how weight gain is really not controlled by energy in, energy out, calories. calories in, calories in, calories in. It was really controlled by hormones. Yes. And they understood that. Yes. They didn't at that point understand that it was the insulin hormone, which turns out to be the m most powerful hormone for fat deposition. But they understood there was something going that was controlling fat deposition that was not about calories. And then all that was lost, yeah. that science. It was all written in German and then the whole field of nutrition moved over to the United States, didn't read the German articles, and then was just lost. So instead, center stage is Ansel Keys and his colleagues, and they become the most influential nutrition scientists of the 20th century. They, they're very closely tied in with the National Institutes of Health, that they're the people of all the money for all the research yeah. grants. They kind of take over the whole nutrition establishment, really. Mm. Um, they, they're the editors at all the major journals. They're the top people at all the expert conferences. And they suppress dissent, right? Like so this John is, Yudkin was another scientist at the time that was showing that sugar was really the driver of right. all the cardiovascular risk factors. Yes. And so they completely silenced him and he ended up sort of dying in disgrace at the end of his career, basically kicked out of his lab in London and uh, right. the, the high fat crew didn't do well and the low fat crew <laughs> ascended. <laughs> well, there were, these were, you know, so these were like Yudkin, as you say, he was a professor um, in, in London, um, at London University. His theory was that it was sugar that caused heart disease. And there was another man, uh, uh, MD in the U.S. called Stefanson, and he had traveled all over with the, uh, the Inuit in, in the Arctic, the Canadian yeah. Arctic. And it was, and he saw them being devastated by carbohydrates. So it was his theory that it was carbs and sugar. So there were these other thinkers with other hypotheses. And it is true that they were, uh, silenced. I mean, which is a shorthand way of saying like they were criticized. They were, they were told that, um, you know, really in the same way that we see today. They're, they're accused of being backed by industry. They were, um, their science was attacked. They were attacked. They were, um, they couldn't get their papers published in journals. I mean, mm -hmm. that's the way that science is, is silenced. Yeah. Um, and the data that, that Dr. Keyes used was based on 
looking at patterns of consumption of foods in a certain number of countries in Europe. There were seven countries. And it was just looking at correlation. And most people don't understand that science is not all the same. Science that shows correlation doesn't prove anything. It just shows a correlation. I could wake up every morning, the sun comes up. They have nothing to do with each other, but there's a 100% correlation. <laughs> I'd like to see the sun <laughs> shines because of you, Mark. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I don't think that's it. I don't, I don't believe that. And I, and I think that they... They tried to follow up on that research because they believe the theory and they saw this association. But when they did the follow-up research, it was fascinating because they did a study that could never be done today that was unethical. It was 9,000 patients in mental institutions who were captive. They gave half of them high saturated fat diet and half of them vegetable oil or corn oil. And they were sure that the corn oil group would do better, have less heart attacks, less deaths. And in fact, their cholesterol dropped on the corn oil, but their heart attack rate and death rate was dramatically increased. For every 20, 30 point drop in cholesterol, there was a 22% increase in heart attack and death. And they suppressed that data for 40 years because they didn't believe it and they didn't want to publish it. And it was just published a couple of years ago. So yeah, that's the Minnesota Coronary Survey. Ansel Keys was one of the primary investigators and you're right. It was the biggest, most ambitious test ever funded by the National Institutes of Health of his hypothesis, right? And they and and at the end of that study what happened was they did actually publish it in 1979, but the but that was 16 years after they had finished the study. So they study results come out, they don't publish them for 16 years and they finally put it in this little out of the way journal that they know nobody will read. And when the one of the investigators was asked why wait so long, because it is, of course, a form of cheating in science not to publish your results. And um, he said, well, there was nothing wrong with our data. We were just so disappointed in the way it turned out. <laughs> but, it, but it wasn't there more data that came out. So then, yes. Yeah, so this is so then in 2015, these researchers uh, at NIH went back to that study and they went back to the son uh, of the investigator and they they found out that in the basement there were these magnetic tapes from the study that had never been fully analyzed and they analyzed them and they used special machines to try to get the data off of them and they discovered that they had never published the full results. And and so in 2015, they published a result that actually the more the men lowered their cholesterol, the higher their rate of yeah. heart dying from heart disease. So everything that, so, and this is the exact opposite. And the butter group did better, basically. And the butter group did better, right. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, and, and actually, so the story is, um, the bigger story is that that study, the, the, the idea that study results are ignored, not published, that is not the only example of that. I mean... Yeah. And this was a randomized control trial, which is the highest level of evidence. It's not like a population study where you can see a pattern, but you can't prove anything. Right. This data is more convincing. Right. So this is the kind of data, randomized controlled clinical trial, gold standard of evidence. It's where you can demonstrate cause and effect, right? That's what they do for drug trials. They, they, show, they have to do a trial to show cause and effect. Otherwise, as you say, it's just this kind of weak observational data. That data relies, it's, it's data relies entirely on people um, 
recording what they ate. Right. You know, these food, food frequency, frequency questionnaires. questionnaires. It's like, yeah. what did you, how many peaches did you eat in the last six months? Now, how many pears did you eat in the last six months? And then like, and repeat that for other 200 items on the list. Yes. And then as Somebody asked any, me what I ate yesterday. I can't even remember. I can't remember, <laughs> I can't remember like, what I ate this morning. So that data has been shown to be just notoriously unreliable, right? And they can't, um, and they've actually tried, they've actually done tests on it, you know, see what do people actually eat and then what do they remember they ate. People, it's all confounded, like the fatter you are, the more likely you are to lie about the data. I mean, it's really fascinating. But the point is- It also is, depends on what the prevailing view is. If you think meat is bad and you eat meat, you're going to minimize your gonna, reporting of how right, much meat you ate. Right. And you minimize your sugar. They've, show, they've shown that people under will under-report how much sugar they eat. And mm -hmm. They so, overestimate the exercise and under-report the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, that just sounds like human nature mm -hmm. to me. But yeah. I think that the point is, is that's really unreliable data. And that was the data that Ansel Keys used as the foundation for that first American Heart Association policy. But then, you know, and that was in 1961. So what I want to say is that the, the what happens after that 1961 policy is the government, the U.S. government and governments around the world realize, okay, we have to test this more rigorously. So they did these trials, these government-funded trials, including this Minnesota coronary survey. They actually tested like more than 75,000 people all over the world in a number of randomized controlled clinical trials. That's again, gold standard of evidence. And I, and I describe these trials in my book. I mean, they were as you say, many of them, the kind of experiments you couldn't do anymore because they were in mental hospitals. You're not allowed to do that anymore right. if you like force people their food. But they were really, that makes it very what we call well-controlled, meaning you're controlling everything that everybody's eating. Yeah. It's not like giving somebody a diet book and saying, you know. Eat and, this, and, right. Yeah, and then you don't know what really happens. So, and none of those experiments could show that, that, that replacing saturated fat with vegetable oils was able to prevent heart disease. Or, or cardiovascular mort or death, right? None of them. One of them that was done in Australia showed that the men on the corn oil diet died at much higher rates um, than people on the regular diet. And none of those, I think the kind of the blockbuster thing to me, which I didn't even really know until after my book was published, is that none of those studies, the billions of dollars spent by governments around the world, none of those studies have ever been reviewed by our dietary guideline committees, which is our like our expert bodies making our national food policy. Extraordinary. They've, they've just ignored all those well, trials. Like your best possible evidence on fat and saturated fat was completely ignored. Paid for by, by taxpayers our, everywhere. Right. And by and it's absent from our guidelines, which we're going to talk about. But I know. And, and the, the data from that study, you went back and looked at it. And what was fascinating to me was that the signal that came up even far stronger than fat was sugar. Yes. So this is going back to the seven country study where they looked at what people ate in seven countries and then they looked at to see who died and who had heart attack. And what he decided was that it was a saturated fat consumption that was most closely correlated with your likelihood of death, right? Uh, it turned out, or cardiovascular death. But um, so I went and looked at that study in a lot of detail. And, and one of the things that I found was that that later on when they reanalyzed the data, they found that sugar and sweets were actually much more highly correlated with cardiovascular death. Mm -hmm. And I actually asked some of Ansel Keys' colleagues, like, well, why did you not report on sugar? And they said, well, we had discussions about it, but um, Keys was just so opposed to the idea that it was sugar that caused heart disease. And he was very sure of his own idea that it was fat. So, I mean, one of the things about Ansel Keys... So is much just, for the purity of science and independent researchers, and, right? It's I, just, I mean, I, honestly, Nina, when I was in medical school, I thought that 
science was this beautiful, pristine, <laughs> you know, honest field full of integrity and truth. And as I've learned and as I read the data, it's highly influenced by the food industry. It's highly influenced by bias. It depends on the design of the study and who's looking at it, who's paying for it. It's fascinating. And Marin Nessel is writing a new book about how the nutrition science that we have is corrupted by the food industry, which basically obfuscates the truth. And they try to promote basically false science, like fake news, yeah. like soda doesn't cause obesity and dairy is great for your bones and all sorts of ideas that we have pretty uh, much taken on in the society are, are often corrupt by the food industry. So science yeah. is not this pure field of truth. It's yeah. essentially a often corrupt thing. And, and you, know, you have to know how to read it and think about it. And that's what's impressive in your work is that you really go through the nitty gritty and you don't just look at the headlines, you go between the lines, you look at the data, you look at the appendices of the data, you look at the appendices, the appendices <laughs> of the data, and you really kind of find out what, what's going on. It's very impressive. The thing about nutrition science is, you know, the food industry is huge and they have a stake in what nutrition science says. If there's a study coming out that says that, you know, five walnuts a day helps, you know, lower your risk of heart disease, you can be sure the walnut industry is probably behind that study, but it makes a big difference for them. Like what can they put on their packages and, you know, mm -hmm. can they claim they lower heart disease? So the food industry is really, and they know how to corrupt science at its very source, right? Yeah. They know how to fund studies and get them, get, you know, how to, how to distort the, even the study design so that yes. they can get a favorable response. But I think in this field, there's another factor play, at play, which is maybe even stronger, which is that, is that the scientists and experts themselves, I don't believe that they were, you know, going back to the 50s, 60s, and 70s, I really don't believe that they were corrupt. I didn't really find evidence of that so much as I found their kind of, that they fell in love with their own ideas. They were really just unable to see data to the contrary. And they couldn't accept it when when there was contrary data. And, and Ansel Keys kind of did the opposite of a scientist, which he believed that he was right until proven wrong. Yeah. Science, like, you you're know, supposed to prove yourself wrong. You're supposed to prove yourself wrong. And then, like, only after you gradually accumulate data do you think, like, well, maybe, maybe I'm right. But let me see how I could prove myself wrong again. You know, that's yeah. the way science is supposed to work. So, and then I think the other factor is that these ideas became institutionalized, mm. right? Once they're adopted by public health institutions, the medical government. institutions, the entire government. And then you have this thing where, uh, the institutionalization of science, it's, it's, it's like institutional science is almost like an oxymoron because science requires self-doubt, the ability to change according to data, the ability to, to be flex, the ability to be flexible. Institutions just need the exact opposite, right? right. They can't flip-flop on their publics. They need constancy. They need to, for their credibility, they can't be changing. So it's very hard once this was adopted by the U.S. government, the idea that you should not eat fat and cholesterol it just became so hard to reverse out of. How many people know that there's no more caps on dietary cholesterol? In other words, eat as many eggs as you want, don't worry about shellfish, eat liver if you like it. That is no longer, there are no more caps on cholesterol. We had them for 35 years. Yeah. And <laughs> I love what I heard about that. One of the people on the guidelines committee said, you know what? We never really looked at the science. We just thought it was bad. So we eliminated it for 35 years and told people to eat egg white omelets. And oops, sorry. And they call it no longer a nutrient of concern, which yeah. is pretty amazing to me. And they did kind of, so that was in 2015, the dietary guidelines dropped that 
limit. And the American Heart Association did the same thing a couple of years before. And that was, and that, and that went, went all the way back to Ansel Keys, right? That was his idea. Mm -hmm. Nobody really ever looked at the science too hard. And, um, and, but they did kind of tiptoe away from that advice. I mean, there were no big headlines. There wasn't a big, there was no, yeah, yeah, there was no were, press release no, around it, like, right? Oh, it's not a nutrient of concern. And we were wrong and we're just not going <laughs> to, we don't want to talk, talk about, about it, it anymore. <laughs> so true. <laughs> but the other amazing thing is, um, is that they no longer recommend a low fat diet. Yeah. That's pretty shocking. And again, there was no headlines about it. No, they didn't. They just nothing. removed removed the limit. It used to be thirty percent, thirty five percent. Now they were like, uh, it doesn't matter, right? Now they're like, we don't talk about it. So what they did is actually they did a little. It's a little bit of a um, rhetorical jujitsu, I think, which is that they just stopped talking about the low fat diet. If you go to the to the dietary guidelines, the American Heart Association, you search low fat. It's like it's gone. Like wow, <laughs> that was my life. Um, and then. That what they've done is they've shifted over to talking about dietary patterns. Mm -hmm. So now we have dietary patterns, which are all, you know, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, seeds, fish, low-fat dairy, and lean meat. And they don't talk about how much fat you should eat. Yeah. So And they talk about lean meat, and they also talk about low-fat dairy, and they also talk about low-saturated fat. Yeah, there's still a cap on saturated fats. Yeah. So that that's that that's why you're supposed to have lean meat and low fat dairy is because of the saturated fats. But the low fat diet is gone. But again, no press release, no announcement. Nobody knows that you know they should stop avoiding fat. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a little bit down a different road because you know saturated fat is bad according to the experts, but vegetable oils are good according to the experts, and that we should be consuming a lot of these polyunsaturated, basically omega-6 refined oils like soybean oil, which is 10% of our calories, corn oil, safflower oil, sunflower oil, canola oil, and they're all saying these are great. We should consume more of them. What do you have to say to that? <laughs> well, okay, so going back to Ansel Keys, when they said avoid saturated fats, you were supposed to replace them with vegetable oils, right? That was the idea going back to the 1960s. Well, this is where the food industry does come in a little bit, just to start off this story. So the, um, the, the vegetable oil industry was kind of born in the early 1900s, right? The first vegetable oil product was Crisco. Oh, yeah. Right? <laughs> so it used to be that those oils were used for the Industrial Revolution. Um, they were used to, to lubricate machinery. And then they figured out how to harden them to make them, and they <laughs> learned how to bleach them and make them look white. And then they thought, and it was actually Procter & Gamble that, that figured out how to do that. They were going to make it into a soap. You know, soap is made from oil. Instead, they're like, yeah. hmm, that looks an awful lot like lard. Let's try yes. to sell it as a food. Yeah. So they started to sell it as a food. Um, and fat. Yeah, so it turns out that they contained, you know, that it's what they... The hardening vegetable oils is done through a process called hydrogenation, and that produces trans fats. But so these... These trans fatty hardened oils were started to be sold to Americans in 1911. Um, so coincidentally, um, heart disease starts to take off right uh, right around maybe like 10 years later. Um, we start seeing increases in death from heart disease. So um, so then Procter and Gamble figures out how to just sell oil as oil. So one of the things to understand about um, these oils is they're pressed. Well, Procter and Gamble produced like shampoo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they they were a soap maker, so Amazing. that's why they came up with this. So, but they were like, but Crisco was like a best-selling thing. Mm -hmm. They convinced, you know, in America, 
So all these immigrants, so uh, and they want to become American, right? And so Procter & Gamble had this brilliant advertising campaign basically saying, you know, give up lard. Those are the, for, the bygone days of your grandmothers, like the spinning wheel of the olden days. And, you know, have... Crisco instead. And this is yeah. the newfangled thing made uh, in, you know, shiny scientist kitchens. So, um, so uh, Procter & Gamble figured out how to then make vegetable oils that were fluid in bottles. They kind of tinkered with the fatty acids to make them stable. Um, and then, uh, so here's the where they, they started to influence nutrition science. In 1948, um, the American Heart Association, which is really just an association of cardiologists, right? Remember, heart disease is new. Tiny little association. Yeah. They barely had an office. They were just yeah. like, they barely had any funds. Procter & Gamble comes in and says, we're going to make you the designee of this radio show uh, for the, a week. And over, it was this huge deal. Overnight, Literally, according to the official history of the American Heart Association, they said millions of dollars flowed into our coffers. We became overnight the powerhouse, opening offices all across the country that we are today. They're still the number one largest non-for-profit in the, in the country. Amazing. All thanks to Procter & Gamble. And pretty soon thereafter, they started to recommend that you start eating vegetable oils to prevent a heart attack. Mm -hmm. Which um, was the worst idea because it turns out that trans fats, everybody agrees in this, have killed hundreds of thousands, millions of people over the day. Decades. Trans, so that's yeah. The trans fats in the hardened vegetable oils and Crisco are bad for health. Clearly bad for health. But in the liquid form, and now they're ruled as not safe to eat by the FDA after right. fifty years of pressure to change right. that. Right. Uh, and finally, took a lawsuit from a ninety-seven-year-old scientist who first discovered this fifty years ago to get them to change. Right. <laughs> All right. Now, before we end, I want to dive into a, a topic that I know you're passionate about and that matters. So we've heard all this conflicting evidence about what to eat about the recommendations from the government. And these recommendations, which are called our dietary guidelines, have really shaped a lot of our thinking about what's good and what's not good to eat. And we followed it. And we followed it in terms of public health recommendations, in terms of what doctors say, nutritionists say, what scientists say, and more importantly, what the government tells people to eat in the form of nutrition programs from our school lunches to our military programs and so much more. And you know, I just want to give you some credit because people say, oh, what can one person do to change the world? You know, <laughs> Margaret Mead said, never doubt that a small group of people who are committed can change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. And you understood the challenges with these guidelines. They really were promoting ideas that were killing millions of people. And, and you said, I'm not going to stand for this. And you went to Congress and you shared this perspective and you said, we need to think about the guidelines in a different way. And you basically got the Congress to commission a million dollars so the National Academy of Sciences and Medicine would review how we come up with these guidelines and whether there was integrity in them, whether they looked at all the science, whether there was corruption in them. And this report that was really initiated by you has come out and it says some pretty shocking things. So can you tell us about what's wrong with the dietary guidelines and how you set about to go fixing them and what's next? So, okay. Well, so first of all, no one person can take credit for what Congress does. Like Congress does what Congress does. And I, 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 but you earned, gave them a little I, zets in the I, yeah. And I, and it was that report by the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine was the first ever peer review of the dietary guidelines since they were launched in 1980. Amazing. 35 years of policy. And if you look at their, I mean, if you judge the guidelines by the outcome measures, the dietary guidelines were meant to prevent disease. We got right? pretty bad. <laughs> 
like, how has that progress gone? Oh. You know, like here, you know, How's here's that ob for obesity you? <laughs> going up, diabetes going up, heart disease still number one killer, cancer going up. So like by any outcome measure, they have been a total failure, right? Um, and the conventional explanation is that people don't follow the guidelines. And who even knows about the guidelines? I don't go to my .gov website to find out about a diet, and you don't. But, the but you thing know about is, the food pyramid. You know about the food pyramid, and the reality is that they are just downloaded into every doctor's office, every nurse, every dietitian, every nutritionist. They, When you go to their office, they are giving you the guidelines, right, with rare exception. So, and they're in, you know, they determine school lunch programs, feeding, you know, what your elderly parent gets at their feeding, you know, their nursing home, all of that. So, and hospital food. So I came to understand like how powerful they are. They have such a powerful control over how Americans eat, probably the single most important lever. And they clearly are not working. The argument that Americans don't follow them, I looked at that. I was yeah. like, well, maybe Americans don't follow them and it is our fault. Um, but I went and looked at the, all the best available government data that I could find since 1970. I mean, in every food category you looked at, you can look at Americans yeah. follow the guidelines. Low red, fat, less meat, less eggs, less everything. high fat dairy. Meats yeah. down by, red meat's down by 28%. And we've increased our chicken by 120%. Animal, you know, vegetable oils, we've increased by almost 90%. Animal fat's down by 17%. I mean, everything. There's not one area where we have deviated. Eating more grains, right? 40% more grains, more fruits and vegetables. And the vegetables is not ketchup. It's like the greatest single increase in in vegetables has been leafy greens. You mean like, iceberg lettuce? Like, I don't know, kale. <laughs> We're all eating kale. It's the age of... What do you know? um, so... So it, so that argument that it's just that Americans don't follow the guidelines is not supported by the data. And then people also say, well, Americans eat more calories, right? And 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 that's true. We do yes. eat 270-something more calories per day than we used to. But if you look at it, every single one of those calories is carbohydrates. Carbs, right. So what we did, what the guidelines did is they put us on a high-grain diet, right? Seven Six to, to 11, 11 <laughs> servings of bread, rice, syrup, and pasta a day. Right? Every day. And we did it. And just the way you can fatten cattle on grains, you, it turns out you can fatten humans pretty well on grains. So I did. I mean, I felt like the, the, there's in Washington, D.C., there's just so much defense of this policy and the status quo. And, you know, they're renewed every five years. And the expert committee that is supposed to review the science instead just kind of rubber stamps the status quo. Nobody wants a change. And many food of them industry, have conflicts of interest. Many of them, are, you know, have conflicts of interest. They're funded by food industry, people in the food industry. Nobody wants to change, rock that boat. I mean, because, you know, to say that the guidelines are wrong is is really a kind of heresy, right? So that's what I've done. I've committed an act of heresy. I wrote the, a paper that was a, on the cover story of the British Medical Journal saying that guidelines are not based on good evidence. They've ignored all those clinical trials we talked about yeah. that were never ignore, never in there. You know, well, the best available evidence about fat, they completely ignored. They ignored. So, you know, those of us who study the science, if you go and read the expert report, you're like, well, where's all the science I studied? Yeah, it's not why do there. they say we have to drink three glasses of milk a day? There's no evidence for that. There's no evidence for that. So there's also, and I and I look to see, like, there's been this a huge body of evidence that's grown up around the benefits of, of, of ramping back your carbohydrates a little bit and eating a little more, more fat. There's more than 70 clinical trials now. There were 64 when the the 2015 Dietary Guideline Committee was reviewing the science. And they none of them. those, none of those were in there. So actually they reviewed them, but they decided to put it in the methodology section of the paper. And one of the committee members, I know this from, from emails that I um, got through a Freedom of Information Act request. One of yeah. the committee's those members... Those damn emails, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> they get to you. That's right. Be careful what you're writing your email. Um, so one of the committee members said, you know, I don't think we should be burying, that was the word he used, burying this data in the methodology section where it doesn't belong. And then it was like, well, yeah. that was the end of that email chain. <laughs> yeah. So... You know, I, I so it, I started this group, the Nutrition Coalition, and our goal, it's really, you know, we get no industry money. We are, we don't want to be conflicted in any way. We just, our whole aim is just to say, we want, we want science in our guidelines and we want the best science and we want it not to be cherry picked. We want the whole body of science. We want you to review those clinical trials that we paid for and put that in the evidence base. And, um, and we don't, we don't recommend any one diet. You know, we're not an advocate for any one diet. You know, I'm confident if the clinical trial research is actually reviewed, which is the best rigorous, most rigorous science, that we'll get good guidelines. Yeah. So, you know, and the reason it's important for everyone is that, like, even if you fix your own diet, you've still got, you know, unless you live in a very privileged sphere, you've still got your child in school lunch program, your, you know, what food you get in a hospital, your parent at a nursing home, our military. Do you know that, do you know what the rate of obesity is in the military? Obesity. Yeah. It's not huge. overweight. It's 14%. Unbelievable. And you cannot say those guys are not exercising. Those men and women are not exercising enough. No, you right? can't exercise your way out of a bad diet. <laughs> Who said that? I did. <laughs> so, and actually two thirds are overweight or up to two thirds are yeah. overweight or obese. And they have Due to illness and injury, and, and, you know, illness is something that happens, is associated with being overweight, right? Yeah, of course. 10% of our armed forces at any one time are not deployable. No, it's frightening. We are, we are literally poisoning America. And I, I hate to say this, but I, I think it's true that, that our government recommendations in the original food pyramid, which was 6 to 11 servings of bread, rice, cereal, and pasta a day, and very little fat, really led to millions of deaths. Um, not intentionally, but... I think the consequence of that advice has really led to this greatest uh, health crisis uh, and globally that we've ever seen in humanity. Uh, and and you're you're really a pioneer in fighting for this. And I think, you know, it's curious to see what's going to happen next with the guidelines. Do you think they're going to shift? Do you think there's going to be a uh, a shift in the recommendations? Well, I'm somewhat hopeful um, in that I think that you know. The USDA, which is the, the the agency in charge of the guidelines, they um, I believe that they are actually interested in real reform. They put it out as one of their legislative priorities to have reform of the dietary guidelines so that they are science-based. Those are their words. And they've taken a number of steps as they started off doing this next set of guidelines that suggests that they really are going for transparency. Um yeah, it was and, the first time they ever invited comments, right? I mean, right. They had public comments on sort of the topics that they want to focus on for review. And among those topics, like hallelujah, included low-carbohydrate diets mm -hmm. um, and saturated fats. And, you know, so those are two big areas where if you could change the current guidelines, like if you just simply allowed lower-carbohydrate diets as one possible dietary pattern, mm -hmm. that would be huge. Huge, yeah. And if you could recognize that the caps on saturated fats are really not, it shouldn't be a strong recommendation, if at all a recommendation, if you could get rid of that, that would also be... That would be, be big. Yeah. That would reflect good science. It's true. And, it, you know, there's a more and more emerging research. One of our colleagues, Sarah Halberg, just published a paper on diabetes. Now, this is a condition that... In medical school, I learned once you had it, you got it. There's no reversing di type 2 diabetes. Type 1 for sure not, but that's not that's an autoimmune disease. Type 2 is really a disease of carbohydrate intolerance. And in this study, which was remarkable, showed by using a very high-fat diet with lots of saturated fat, 
you literally could reverse 60% of type 2 diabetes in a year. You can get 100% of people off the main diabetes medication, which potentially is harmful and has been linked to heart attacks. And you can get people off insulin or dramatically lower insulin in 94% of the people. That is unprecedented. And the average weight loss was 12%, which is unheard of in dietary studies or about 30 pounds. This is radical. And yet, it's not mainstream. It's not something that doctors use or recommend. But there's an increasing awareness that different kinds of diets that actually restrict carbohydrates and increase fats may actually help with certain metabolic conditions. And we're seeing this across the board in terms of diabetes, obesity, even things like cancer. Fatty liver disease. Fatty liver disease, Alzheimer's, mm -hmm. autism, epilepsy, brain tumors. I mean, it's pretty interesting. This data is starting to come in at a rapid rate. And now I go on Amazon, look at the best-selling books, and a lot of them are ketogenic diets, which I find really fascinating. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I just, just to emphasize one of the one of the numbers that you just said about that Sarah Hallberg study, um, that was on a, uh, at one year 60% reversal. Okay, that means they no longer have a diagnosis of diabetes. If you go to, if you look at that same number, if you go on the standard American Diabetes Association diet, that Zero. number is 0.1. I'm sorry, <laughs> give them credit, 0.1%. 0.1, all right, 0.1 <laughs> compared to 60 <laughs> I'm sure you will have found that interesting and at BJSM we really encourage you to engage with your thoughts via our various social media channels. Please do share our podcast app if you're finding the podcast useful and as always I hope you get a chance to have a physically active day where you're able to make empowered food choices based on good evidence. 